This resource is produced by Discipleship.org, championing Jesus' way of disciple-making. Attend the next National Disciple-Making Forum by registering at Discipleship.org. The following audio comes from the 2016 National Disciple-Making Forum. The theme this year was Culture Shift, Back to Jesus' Way of Disciple-Making. Discipleship.org brought together 10 disciple-making organizations all in one place, each organization hosting a different track. One of those 10 tracks was hosted by Final Command Ministries. Here's audio content from Final Command and their track called Viral Disciple-Making Movements. Thanks for joining our time with our team forum. This is Final Command Ministries. Uh, We're based out of uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Um, just down the road about an hour and ten minutes from here um, or further depending on where you live uh, but that's only a post office box we don't have a building you know we're a small uh, missions agency um, but some incredible huge impact around the world uh, so we're going to get a chance a, a glimpse of, of who we are and mostly not about us but about what God's doing in, in uh, movements around the world and hopefully you'll have a uh, a better understanding of what disciple-making movements are, um, and even even final command as well. But this is our team. I want to introduce you to our team. From left, my your left is James Fourlines. He's executive director uh, for um, for our final command ministries, and he's uh, been executive director now. How long, James? Two weeks? <laughs> Five years. Uh, this is a very young organization. Uh, Final Command was started 15, 16 years ago um, as a result of uh, a couple of men, Claude King, you may know that name, uh, from Experiencing God, a co-author, uh, and Jerry Trousdale, a couple of others uh, from Africa. And um, James may even want to share a little bit about um, how that was started, but James is our executive director. Then Gordon Baines, uh, who is uh, over our next gen area. And uh, he's been a part of Final Command and just learning about, you know, it's another story in itself, but uh, been part of Final Command for two plus years now, three, almost three. Gosh, it's been, time is marching on. And uh, Gordon used to be a missions pastor here at Long Hollow. Um, he was a former high school teacher. And then we have Terry New, and he's been with, he was probably one of the original uh, gang of three of starting Final Command as far as staff, having staff. And um, it's great to have Terry. He's over Engage, which is a, a study of disciple-making movements and um, helps churches to have those kinds of uh, studies about disciple-making movements and teaching discovery bible study and then john king uh, right here directly by me who is our global coach for disciple making movements um, john was one of the originators of uh, of discovery bible study so we're very fortunate to have him on our staff he's also one of the kind of the original staff members as well um, my name is gary jennings and uh, i facilitate a ministry called global cities project under final command um, igniting disciple-making movements, or at least igniting the, an environment for disciple-making movements in cities um, under the, uh, the ministry of final command. So we're so happy that you're here and hope this is a, an informative time 
for you and a time that you can learn and grow and pray and understand what God wants you to do uh, in the future. And uh, so let's start. We're going to actually start with kind of a TED Talk from James Fourlines, our executive director. And uh, so I'm going to hand it over to James to let him him talk for uh, 10, 15 minutes, 20, 15. And, uh, and then after that, we'll start kind of having a little Q&A time. James? Thank you, Gary. Um, in the... Um in the forum, the very first forum that I, I did in the larger gathering, I think we were all instructed that uh, we were going to have a conversation among those of us who were here uh, on the couches and everything. I, I think there's uh, the, the, the audience is intimate enough here that we can have a conversation with all of us. Uh, so this won't be just with me and with these guys, but with all of us. Um, my senior year in college, I had... A, an Italian philosophy professor by the name of uh, Dr. Piccarelli. And um, I don't remember uh, what specific philosophy it was that he was, um, that he was talking about. I think it was existentialism. I don't remember. But uh, I do remember that looking around the room, nobody in our class was understanding what he was saying. Uh, we were just completely lost. And he looked at us and he said... Um, are you confused? And we, we all go, yeah, we have no idea what you're talking about. And what he said after that, at a number of different levels, changed my life. Because he said this, he said, good. Confusion is the first step of learning. Idiots are never confused. And I thought about it. That is true. You have to go through a process of confusion sometimes before you actually get to learning. And I think the same thing is true as we're talking about change. I think frustration is the first step toward change. When we're not frustrated, when we're okay with whatever it is, if it's our marriage, if it's our church, if it's disciple-making, if we're okay with it, we don't change anything. It's when we get frustrated. Now, I am guessing that most of the people who are here either in, are involved in some sort of disciple-making ministry themselves or the other people who are at this forum are here because there's an area of frustration. As we look at our culture, as we look at the fact that there are a hundred million evangelical Christians in North America and we look at what's happening to our culture, there should be some measure of frustration. If we truly are salt and light and there's a hundred million of us, should we not be making a stronger impact? And then we start thinking, okay, why is that? And I think a lot of us, including most of the ministries that are here, have come to the conclusion that um, we have neglected discipleship. Um, and in fact, recently, within the last couple of weeks, I was reading a blog uh, entry on disciple making, and it gave this analogy. The analogy was of an airplane, and, and the, the whole purpose of the article was that we have, we've neglected disciple making. 
We've emphasized evangelism, leading people to faith in Jesus Christ, but we've neglected discipleship. And so the analogy was that one wing is evangelism, the other wing is disciple-making. And if we are going to see the plane fly effectively, we really need to have both. Um, Well, honestly, I, I really think we need to question the assumption of that. In fact, I'm all for questioning assumptions, even you questioning mine. I think that that emphasizes that there are still two separate responsibilities of the church in global evangelism, and that is evangelism and disciple-making. And what I'd like to offer today in disciple-making movements is there really is one. There is one thing. And that is the Great Commission, the call of the Great Commission is to go and make disciples. That's it. Now, once we come to that definition and we start unpacking what that definition means, then it starts giving us some direction and some impetus to how we go about doing that. Um, So just so that we can clarify, uh, Gordon, if you will, um, remind us, All of us have read this millions of times, but remind us what Matthew says about the Great Commission. How does it state it? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I may be wrong, but I think that in... Many people's mind, the Great Commission is the cause of world evangelism. And so that would be on the evangelism side of it. Um, And then we even hear talked about, you know, there's the Great Commission and there's the Great Commandment. Love one another. And so we need to emphasize all of them. What, What Matthew is declaring in the words of Jesus is that there is one thing. Go, as you're going, as you are going, make disciples. And what that means is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So the truth is, discipleship includes the great commandment. Discipleship is evangelism. It's one simple thing, and God has tasked us with one simple thing. Now, when you come to that conclusion, then there are several things that derive from that. And I'd like for us to clarify maybe the assumptions of what we may have thought about discipleship and say, what is the biblical role of disciple-making? First of all, when does it begin? When does disciple-making begin? For a lot of people, and in our paradigm that we've had, disciple-making begins once a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Evangelism is what happens up to that point. And then disciple-making is what happens after that. Um, if If there's one task to make disciples, if that's the calling of Jesus, then what we would advocate in disciple-making movements is disciple-making begins with engagement. It begins the very moment you're engaging the lost. And the truth is, you are discipling them to faith in Jesus, not just from faith in Jesus on in spiritual formation. So when does it begin? Uh, 
We think it begins the very moment there's an engagement. Second of all, where does it happen? Um, the assumption many times is that is in some church structure, whether it's actually in the facility or in some organized structure of the church. The church is certainly the one that's responsible for disciple-making. But if it is, as the text says, as you're going, make disciples, then it is as we are going, he's working in advance of us, and as we're going, we are finding the people that we are going to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So it's not necessarily in some structure. It's as we're going, we are making disciples. Then, who is doing the discipling? A general assumption is that the people who are disciple makers are those who are trained, highly trained. Uh, maybe they are uh, it'd be great if they could be seminary or, or Bible college trained. That would even make them greater potential of disciple makers. Uh, but certainly there has been maybe some extensive training that they've received so that they can be uh, disciple makers. Um, the only challenge with that is how in the world did the early church turn the Mediterranean world upside down when there were no Bible colleges or seminaries? There were no ordained clergy. How do we explain what's happening in China now, what's happening in Iran now, what's happening in Ethiopia now, when the, the, the truth is the people who are making disciples are common people, ordinary people. It's Many times it's people who have just come to know Jesus Christ as a Savior themselves. The truth is it's not our work. It's the Holy Spirit. It's His work. It's what he is doing, and disciple-makers are ordinary men and women. What that, in that uh, big pie that I talked about, and there's the wedge group, maybe the 5 to 10% that really are the highly trained in the church, and those are the ones who are really doing most of the work of the ministry. What we really need to do is mobilize the rest of the pie, every woman, every man. And the truth is, in the context in which I work, it's the least likely people that you would ever expect that would be disciple makers. So, when does it begin? It begins at engagement. Where does it happen? As we're going. Who is doing it? Everyone. Every believer. Every single believer in the church needs to be a disciple maker who makes disciple makers. How is it done? Um, generally speaking, those who are qualified are teaching those who are novices. And so therefore, through some process of time, those who have received some sort of a qualification, they then are teaching. And it's responsibility for me to be the conveyor of uh, biblical truth to this person and to bring them along um, in discipleship. Um, when we look at what's happening around the world and even in the early church, the only answer we can really come to is that it was a divine work of the Holy Spirit and it wasn't us. It wasn't people who were highly trained. And many times it was people who had very little experience. One biblical example that we know of is in the church of Thessalonica. Uh, we read in Acts 17 that the 
the Apostle Paul was only there for three weeks. Three weeks. He was run out of town. Whatever he was able to transfer to them in three weeks is all they had. But he wrote back a letter to those people. And in writing back to them, he was writing back to a church. Interestingly, he wasn't just writing back to a church. He said this in 1 Thessalonians 1, that the gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in much assurance. And he adds, and in affliction. But the interesting thing that he adds is, and the gospel has gone forth from you throughout all Macedonia and Achaia. Now, whatever the Apostle Paul was able to do in three weeks, that's all he had. But he not only made disciples, but he made disciples who made disciples who made disciples, and there was a disciple-making movement with ordinary men and women of Thessalonica. And that's what we're finding is true. The context I personally work in is among Muslim peoples in Africa, and some of the greatest disciple-makers are former Muslims who've come out of Islam, and they haven't known the Lord for long, but they have an absolute dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And candidly, we would advocate a discovery approach to the Bible. It's not necessarily that we have to be experts. One of the reasons we find few people who actually become disciple makers is because when they look at around, around at people who are disciple makers, they look at people who have been Christians for a very long time, they've gone through an incredible amount of training, and they think to themselves, I could never do that. Well, what we would advocate is that the Holy Spirit of God, using the Word of God, can create the people of God. It's that simple. And honestly, even a person who is a new believer in Jesus Christ can pray and fast, ask God to speak through them, and speak through His Word, direct them to the people He's already working with, and then they can discover... On their own, the Holy Spirit can use His Word and they can discover themselves what the Bible tells them and immediately obey it. Now you might ask me, are you telling me that you're going to do a discovery approach among Muslim people in Africa and the very first time they do a discovery study, you're asking them to obey? And the answer is yes. It's obedience-based discipleship that starts first lesson. When God tells you it, you obey it. Interestingly, I'll try to get this before we finish, but a friend of mine is very involved in Afghanistan. And um, his name's John Weaver. He's been there since 1998. Um, somewhere along the line, I'll find this maybe during our discussion, about what happens when Muslim people who've never had contact with the Word of God at all and a Muslim from Iran who is taking the gospel to Afghanistan... And they're sitting down with these Muslims in Afghanistan and they're hearing the word of God the very first time and obeying it. God will bless obedience. And so we would say um, how it's done through discovery. Immediately obey it and tell others. 
And that can create a movement, by the way, that is infinitely reproducible. It's infinitely reproducible. In any culture, it's, it's, it's happened in the first century. It can happen now. It can happen in any language. It, it can happen among oral people who don't even know how to read. It can happen in literate people because it's the power of the Holy Spirit. And then why is discipleship done? Why is it that we are doing disciple-making? The final question. Um, the assumption has been a lot of times it's because of spiritual formation for those who have been saved. If they've accepted Jesus, then they need to have spiritual formation. They will become better parents. They'll become better workers, better spouses, better children, better people. They'll be more attractive. Um, perhaps we need to ask the question, is this not the vehicle through which we can finish the task of world evangelism? The where we are called to make disciples is within the context of global evangelism. Go make disciples, teaching them to obey all things I've commanded, and I will be with you. Acts goes on to say, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, I will do that. Now, candidly, this part of this is what answered a frustration of mine that I had over 20 years ago. Global evangelism has been the context that I've been involved in disciple-making, not necessarily here in the U.S. And I looked around at my denomination and how we were planting churches internationally, especially in difficult areas. And I said to myself, if everyone is doing what we're doing, we'll never win the world. Think in your context. Think about areas that are very difficult. And I want to make some assumptions. Now, I'm going to do some numbers. I could write them down. There's not that many of us. So let me just run these numbers and, and follow me with this. Today, there are about 400,000 evangelical, Bible-believing, cross-cultural missionaries in the world. Still about almost half of them are coming from the U.S., but increasingly, they're coming from around the world. 400,000. Let's make several assumptions. Number one, let's assume they're all married. I know they're not. But let's assume there's 200,000 couples going around the world in other cultures. Let's assume that it takes five years to plant a church in another culture. That's 40,000 churches at some every year. On average, 40,000 churches that are going to be turned over to national leadership. All right, let's assume that there are 50 people that are in that church that's planted. All right, if you've got 40,000 of them, there are 50 people. And by the way, that's very optimistic in many places of the world that after five years we're going to have 50 people in a national leader. But let's say that there are 50. 50 times 40,000 is 2 million. We would all praise God, praise God for two million people around the world who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's say that I'm wrong, that I haven't been generous enough. Let's say it's six million. Let's say that the cross-cultural missions efforts around the world are reaching six million people. All right? This happens to be a globe. There are approximately 7,500 beings in this globe. If that is true, then 
this represents, I'm getting one here. This is Nashville and the Davidson County, about a million people. All right? Let's say that in the traditional way of making disciples and planting churches, that we're going to reach six million. So we're going to reach one, two, whoops, three, four, five, six. Whoops, we're losing Nashville. All right, we've got, whoops, we've got six million, praise God, these now are followers of Jesus. Here's the challenge. This year, there are 83 million more people in the world than there were the year before. We're adding 83. All right, we're going to take six. Sorry. We're going to add the next year 88 million. All right, we're going to take six. We're going to add 94 million. We're going to take six. We're going to add 99 million. We're going to take six. We're going to add 107 million. This is what frustrated me 20 years ago, 22 years ago, when I realized that the model that we are doing is not infinitely reproducible and it's not capable of finishing the task of global evangelism. The truth is you're going to have to have millions of ordinary people that are filled with the Holy Spirit of God that the Word of God, because most of the people around the world are not going to have the resources that we have available when we walk into this building over here and can buy these resources, they're not going to have them. They're going to have to be able to have the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and somehow create the people of God in cultures all around the world, Muslim, Hindu, here in Nashville, Tennessee, among skeptics among the LGBT queer community, somehow we're going to have to find a way to reach all people and do it in a way that's infinitely reproducible. 22 years ago when I read a little 60-page booklet that said church planting movements, now known as disciple-making movements, in my spirit I said, this can finish the task of world evangelism. So discipleship, disciple-making, who needs to be doing it? Everyone. Where do we do it? Everywhere. How do we do it? The power of the Holy Spirit and discovery through the Word of God. That is just a brief discussion about disciple-making movements. Gary. Thanks, James. I'm always convicted every time I, I see that. And uh, that illustration two years ago during an engaged class that Terry was leading uh, frightened me. And thank you for giving us context to understand the challenge ahead of us. Um, John King, I want to ask you a, a question here. Kind of help us understand, um, kind of put some definition, not a definition, but a, some define what disciple-making movements are that we might be able to see um, fruit of our, our labor. 
the thing that we shoot for with disciple making movement is generational growth. It's the best way to, to gauge is there really a movement. It's where you know you start a group, and out of that group, additional groups start, and out of those groups, additional groups start. And, and the challenge with generational growth that that's always present is the risk of of generational degradation. Years ago with photocopy machines, if you uh, made a, an original and then you copied it, but the next time you didn't save your original, you copied the copy, that the quality is always, always diminishing. Uh, how do you reach people in those groups and, and then top up so that the, the DNA is, is, is present, it's reproducing? One of the reasons that we feel very strongly about a discovery type approach is ultimately we're not the source of authority. The Word of God is. And we're modeling through our training, we're modeling through our exposure, we're modeling through that very first group the idea that ultimately we're not the answer guys or gals. God's Word is. When, when people in a group raise a question that the passage that they're studying uh, doesn't answer, and, and that often happens, uh, the easy thing for those of us who have some you know, long-term biblical exposure through Bible study, uh, great preachers and teachers, is to pop off the answer. What if we showed the patience to say, that's a great question. Why don't I find a passage that helps address that. And our next time that we get together, we'll explore what God's Word says. What we begin to model through that type of approach is Scripture is at the center. Jesus, through the work of the Spirit, through the power of the Word, is the one who's ultimately discipling. And what, what we're wanting to see is this generational growth where people keep going back to the Word. Uh, Gordon took a group of the younger guys down to, was it Costa Rica? Where you did the training where a lot of the pastors were there. And there, there's a question that we train people to ask. It's not one of the regular questions. You, you hope it doesn't have to be used every time. But the question is a sort of a corrective question. Where is that in this passage? That's, that's how you guide people back to the text that, that we're studying. We're going to focus on one passage. And the, the problem when you go in cross-cultural is there's a power distance. Gordon's an outsider. He's highly trained. Even these younger guys, they're, they're, they're going to respect them. And Gordon, unknown to the participants, there, there were 60, 100 at, in that trip. Wherever it was that you had to... Haiti, okay, it was a Haiti. How many were there? 100, 150, 115. And Gordon had his young guys with him. Well, he coached them, I want you to take the group off course. They were plants. It was intentional. He was testing them. He had trained them in asking this question. Where, where is that in this passage? So they're, they're practicing this discovery process, and they've got these plants who pull them off. 
None of them asked the question and pulled the group back. So Gordon's debriefing after this study, and he informed them of what he had done, came clean with them. And they're a little embarrassed because none of them had taken the corrective measure that they'd been trained to do. But then they find, you know, it dawns on Gordon, they recognize, well, you know, it'd be disrespectful for us to, to correct the, the Anglos. And so Gordon's desperate on the fly. You know, we, this is a critical principle. If, if groups aren't self-correcting, if they're not coming back to the passage, we're not discipling them toward trusting the Word. We're, we're discipling them toward following whoever the recognized leader is, wherever he might go, wherever she might go. And so he, he said, football, soccer, big here, right? Well, the World Cups was going, were going on at that time or just gone on, and... He noticed that there was some, this was in a church building, there was some construction paper and there was some bright yellow paper. So he, he says, it's okay if I have a few pieces of this. He goes over and cuts it into four pieces. And he said, in, in soccer, what does this mean? And he whips it out. And, well, that's a yellow card. Well, what does that mean? They, they, they've broken the rule. He said, would you be willing to flag an Anglo who, who starts to take the group off course? And they said, yes. Well, they made a game of it. But eventually what they're beginning to see is it's about what does this passage say? And people who don't have a great deal of knowledge begin to recognize they can hear God's Word and, and they can grapple with it and they can begin to apply it. And the community builds this, this pattern of it's about what Scripture says. How do we, last night they talked about tools and, and they talked about principles or practices. How do we disciple people toward it really is about hearing what God's Word says? And a lot of our practices unintentionally communicate it's about listening to me and giving me back the answers you think I want. So a, a part of disciple-making movement is to see in, internationally a hundred churches within a people group at least three generations deep. We want to see those multiple generations because that's the best place to discover whether or not the DNA is really being passed on whether or not the principles are being practiced and honored. Uh, I'm talking too much, but let me just tell one more story. We have good friends from Kentucky who, who learned these principles several years ago with some of us, and they had a passion for reaching uh, the, uh, the, the Mayan descendants in the Honduras area. And they spent a great deal of time and a real focus, a year, equipping 12 guys, deployed them, and very quickly they had started 100 discovery groups all across the, the region where they were focused on. Well, after a few months, they were frustrated. There were no second-generation groups. 
And so they're thinking, well, you know, this may have worked in India, may have worked in West Africa, but it's, it's not working in our context in Honduras. And so, so our friend David called the guy that had trained a lot of us named David and said, David, I don't think it's going to work in, in Honduras. David in Texas asked David in Kentucky, he said, when are, you, when are you going back to Honduras personally the next time? And he told him the date. And he said, well, it turns out I've got an open weekend. I'll, I'll fly to Honduras, spend some time with your team. We'll, we'll, we'll evaluate. We'll, we'll look into this. Within 45 minutes with that team, he identified two critical pieces where they weren't following what he had trained them in. Those 12 guys had been sent out one by one. And when you're sending them out, it's always to go two by two. There's some accountability to the process when we're going two by two. There are a lot of reasons for two by two, but they were going one by one. More critical, though, is... Those 12 guys were facilitating every single discovery study everywhere there was a discovery going on. What was their practice communicating? Uh, not a rhetorical question. I'm asking you as an audience to think. What, what was their practice communicating? We're the experts. We're the experts, and only outsiders can do this. Why would they assume they could start another group? The practice of the outsiders is it's always outsider-led. David from Texas tells David from Kentucky, you're going to need to retrain your guys. You're going to need to redeploy them. Of those 12, six refused to give up their groups. They refused to go out in pairs. Their egos were too connected to leading those groups. And so they left the mission. So they go from 12 down to six who are going to be deployed in three pairs. Now, from a human standpoint, that looks like a fiasco. They went from a quick start of 100 groups to, what's, what's the number, latest number? Is it like 13,000 groups that are going on and it's like 13, huh? 5,000 groups or churches? 5,000 churches. I think there's like another 8,000 groups. It, the numbers are boggling, but it's 13 generations deep. 1,800 of those churches have come to faith, come to that point in, in the last six months. How we do what we do becomes very important. I got to get rid of this microphone. I told you this morning. I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask Gordon real quick. Gordon, um, 
the tool Discovery Bible Study is very important for the fuel for disciple-making movements. However, one of the questions that we get all the time is, how do you start a Discovery Bible Study? What, what, uh, give us some wisdom. Give us your experience. How do you start a Discovery Bible Study that will be a fuel, the fuel into disciple-making movements? Uh, okay. Uh, I think everybody has to do this. You have to get back from this nice, comfortable couch right here. Um, so the Discovery Bible Study is like a cake. Uh, it has components, precise components, and uh, we always say taste and see. It kind of reminds me of taste and see that the Lord is good, right? And so the Discovery Bible Study is nothing more than actually experiencing God, hot breath, office pages, brushing up against your cheek. It, it's, you're, you're in this process and I hate to even use the word process. I just lack words when it comes to describing what is the Discovery Bible Study. <clears throat> but it is, it's uh, there, it, and I don't want to be, I don't want to sound legalistic like it's, you've got to do this and this, but you've got to do this and this because there's a reason for it. And behind the scene of the Discovery Bible Study, which we're going to do 155 today in room 228, taste and see. Uh, is we, we don't give the recipe away. We always say, you know, if someone came in here and said, listen, have I got a great recipe for you. There's a little butter, and there's a, some salt in this, there's flour, and there's, it, this is boring. We go, it sounds like, okay, whatever. It doesn't, but when you taste and see, you go, whoa, I like that. What's the recipe? <clears throat> and so the Discovery Bible Study is simple. Um, it reminds me of uh, Corinthians 1, 25, 27. Uh, I don't want to sound like Bible boy up here, but God, this is what he does. He takes the foolish things to confound the wise. He takes the young to confound the old. Two weeks ago, we were at Long Hollow, and uh, God asked to do kind of a little session uh, on DBS. There's a 10-year-old boy in the room. He could do the Discovery Bible study. Long Hollow two years ago, uh, we have like a thousand kids in VBS here, third, fourth, fifth graders, doing the Discovery Bible Study. Doing it with their moms in the backseat of the car on their way to work, and then kids doing that with kids in classrooms. It's just, it's really confounding. So anyone can do it. Uh, the problem that I see, there are two outcomes with the Discovery Bible Study, so prepare yourself for this. People become transformed by the word because, just like James said, God honors obedience. Whether it's this much or this much, he honors obedience. And the small act of obedience or the large act of obedience, he honors that. People experience God, they're never the same after that. So that's one outcome. The other outcome is this. My rebel heart rebels against it. And I'm outed. And I can no longer sit under the weight of confronting a holy God and me. And I'm not going there. I've, I can play church all day long. I know the, the language. I can sit and soak. I can hide out. I can nod my head at the right time, laugh. I can say just enough to appear vulnerable, appear transparent, but not the Discovery Bible study. It, it takes you somewhere. 
and it takes you to encounter God, to discover Him, because it requires obedience and accountability. And so the other outcome is this. I'm out. And <laughs> I, th- I see that as even as a biblical principle, is that God never was concerned with majority. It's God plus one is the majority. I even look at Gideon. He said, no, I, don't, I don't need this amount. Let's whittle it down some. No, I don't need that amount. Let's whittle it down some. And then all of a sudden, here's Gideon and 300 taking on tens of thousands. And that's God. Uh, it, it is about obedience. And from obedience comes transformation. And from transformation comes passion. And when people start tasting and seeing who our God is, they never, they trade out, they trade out their addiction. They trade out their sin. They say, this is the better. And when they do, they become exactly what Paul said in, I think, Corinthians as well. I become compelled. You, you, you don't, you, something takes over you. You start sharing this. It's, I used to think about this. This guilted me a little bit, what James would would do. I'm like, that's a logistic thing. And I'm supposed to, as a good Christian, I'm supposed to do these things. But once you actually experience God, and my heart is involved. And I desire one blind beggar trying to tell other blind beggars where the food is. <clears throat> the other thing about discovery is that I used to think, this is a large church here at Long Hollow. We take 1,500 kids to camp, middle school and high school camp. We have all the, as you can imagine, it's like moving a small city to East Tennessee for about two or three weeks. And it takes an army of adults to go. And we'd have youth workers, we'd have our youth pastors, oh, thank you, adults, for giving up your time, your week, to go and serve at middle school or high school camp. But I'm calling them out. They didn't give up anything. What I've learned is that we go and adults go to camp or wherever it is because they, their heart, they want to be around the activity of God just like anybody else. They want to be around transformation. They want to see God do something right in their midst. And that's what I've learned is that when I go, the reason I'm compelled is because I, it does something in me. When I see God do something in John, it does something in me. When I see, I mean, we hear the thing about the burning bush. It does something in me. When Robbie Gallaty, the pastor of this church, tells his testimony and people erupt in applause, it's because they go, I'm reminded one more time that God is who he says he is. And he does this. Inc- By the way, Robbie has an incredible, incredible testimony. Um, unlike any other Baptist preacher I know. And uh, bouncer, drug addict, blah, blah, blah. It just goes on crazy. But, but that's the point is that it has two outcomes. You either, <laughs> you're going with God and being transformed or you are outed. At having your rebellious heart, and, and you cannot, you cannot weigh any more. You cannot uh, handle any more under the weight of that. So anyone can do it, Gary. Anyone can do it. A ten-year-old boy, eighteen-year-old uh, Price, who took it to Costa Rica. Not me. No, I discipled Price. Price got to Costa Rica 
in turn, 18-year-old Price got me to do disciple-making there. And that's just the economy of God. He takes the unlikelies all the time. Let me do a, let me do a little follow-up. Three years ago, Terry knew, Terry and June were here at Long Hollow teaching Engage class. We're going to follow up with you, Terry, in just a second. I want to do one more follow-up with Gordon. Out of that, they were, Terry was teaching Discovery Bible Study. You got turned on, and you went, oh, my goodness, kind of like me. You know, where, where have I been? How did you start the very first two or three dozen Discovery Bible Studies? I'm not talking about two or three. We're talking about dozens. So how did you start? So, so super simple. Um, I, I was always, so January 27th on a Sunday night, 5 o'clock to 8 o'clock, uh, first hour we did this thing, then we had a little supper, and then we had a lecture person come in. This little thing was called the Discovery Bible Study. I don't even think I knew what the name of it was at the time. That was on a Sunday night. Wednesday night, I'm meeting with these guys. They were four 23-year-old young, young men, one that just recently gotten married. We happened to have been in Romans 2 that night. And I said, hey, can we just try this thing? I just learned it Sunday night. You know, They loved it. In fact, John McGlathery, I said, hey, John McGlathery had his backpack slung over his shoulders. He was about to leave. I said, hey, can you do this next week? He goes, oh, yeah, sure. I didn't write it down, but I think I can remember it. Two things. He loved it. They loved it. He could remember it. That's good. Sunday morning. I'm teaching the young adults. I'm not even on staff at the time, but I'm still teaching these 40, 50 young adults. We happen to be in room 232. If you've been in that little room with us, we had 50 people in that little room. I mean, it was smoking hot. And so we're up in there in that room. Well, I walk in. It's Nehemiah. We're doing Nehemiah that Sunday. And I'm like, okay, God, can will this work in Nehemiah? Read Nehemiah 1, talked through Nehemiah 2. It's a little longer. Chapter 3 is a catalog listing of who worked on what, gate, when, and how. And then chapter 4, I said, all right, here's the process. Follow it precisely. Divide up into groups of three or four. Do your thing. Unbelievable what they discovered. It shocked them. They were stunned. Um, then I started seeing life change. Because I see, started seeing life change here, it started affecting me. And uh, I started learning things about God that I had never seen. Why? Because I was actually using his word and not some other filter. And I'm sorry for all the book writers in the room and stuff. But, it, you know, it's kind of like, hey, here's my word hidden in plain sight right before you. This is the curriculum, you know. And so I'm reading and we're just being transformed by the word. And so I start sharing it. So what happens is Terry shares it with me. I share it with this group of five guys. One of the guys is named John David. He's 23 at the time. John David, maybe the second or third week, shares it with his high school younger brother, who's 17, Philip. Within four weeks, it goes from him to me to John David to Philip. Now, we're four generations. Philip plays basketball at Beach High School. You can almost see it across the street. He's playing one at, he's, they have some sort of Saturday morning practice. He tells the boys, there's a basketball team, he says, hey, you three, I'll co- come back with me, I'll cook you breakfast, and I want to do this thing with you. He didn't know what the thing was. It's called the Discovery Bible Study. One, two, three, uh, John David, three, Philip, four, and fifth generation, three basketball players on his team. I have, 
I'm not, I, I've come from, I am a teacher at heart. I love curriculum. I have everything that Lifeway has put out over the last 27 years. Done it, read it, gone through it. Share this, share that. How to do this, script this, blah, 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 blah. blah. And I don't mean to throw curriculum under the bus. There's a part of me that loves it, right? And God has used that dramatically in my life and your life. I have never in the history of all printed material on the planet Earth ever seen anything replicate and be so natural, so quick, natural, accurate, inexpensive, inexpensive. It happens just like that. Thanks, Gordon. By the way, I used to work at Lifeway, so I'm, thanks for buying all that stuff. Yeah, you're I welcome. Really appreciate and throwing you under the bus. So, yeah. <laughs> no, some uh, of my good friends work at Lifeway. That was good eight years that I had there. That yes, I did. Thank you. Um, Terry, one of the things that you taught um, when I went through Engage was this thing called person of peace um, in Luke 10. Explain to us what that, that incredible opportunity for evangelism in, in, as a person of peace or finding persons of peace. And what does that mean to disciple-making movements? How does person, who is a, what is a person of peace, and then how does that fit into disciple-making movements? person of peace is a critical element of disciple-making movements. <clears throat> Speak closer to We firmly believe that God is working on people even before we come along. In a lot of cases, especially in the foreign context, the persons of peace are looking for us. A person of peace has two important elements. One is they're hospitable, and this is described in the 10th chapter of Luke, where you're looking for a person when you go into a village, go into a section of a city or wherever. You're looking for someone who is hospitable. The second thing is these are people who are generally, because they're hospitable, well-connected with other people in their community. We see several examples of this uh, actually in the book of Acts. And some of these people are unlikely. A Roman centurion named Cornelius was contacted by the Holy Spirit, audibly working with him to call for Simon Peter to come. This was a person of peace. And, of course, we know the story that Peter at the same time was receiving a dream also from the Holy Spirit. And so we had a hospitable man there. Peter went to his house, broke Jewish laws at the time by staying in the house of Cornelius. And by the time Cornelius, or by the time Simon Peter had reached Cornelius's house, Cornelius had gathered a whole group together, and we believe they started basically a discovery Bible study at that time using Old Testament scripture. An unlikely one is the Corinthian jailer a man who had probably beaten up on the apostles the night before, but we know that uh, due to a miracle, this man became a person of peace and gathered his whole household together, and they started a study there. This goes all the way back to the book of Acts, so this is very important. We're finding persons of peace all over the world today. Our African brothers maybe have a different view of evangelism than we do. How many times have you heard it, there was sister so-and-so who worked in such-and-such such a country for 20 years, and she only had two converts? And we as Americans think, wow, that's great. She's so faithful. We had one of our African brothers from Sierra Leone staying in our house, and I asked him about that. 
And his answer was, she was working in the wrong village. Somewhere there was a person of peace that had she found and connected with the person of peace, there could have been great work started. They look at it just a little different than we do. And at this point in my life, I'm even getting to the point that if unless the Lord, through his spirit, is working on someone, we're just wasting our time really trying to evangelize them. There are people out there who are open, people out there that God is already speaking to. We need to find them, and especially the connected ones that can bring their whole oikos into the kingdom. We're not after one person. We're after starting a movement. It's relatively easy to start a discovery group. It takes an act of God to start a movement. And it really starts through prayer. And then there's another step we haven't talked about yet, and that is serving the community. And the reason we serve is to build relations with the community and through this, we'll find the person of peace. Through that person of peace, we can then start a discovery group. And from there, we see multiplication happen as other groups are launched out of that group. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for reminding us about uh, serving with purpose. We're going to get to that. Um, John, I'm going to come to you on that about access ministries here in just a minute. But I'm going to go to, go to James. You probably rested up a little bit after your, your presentation here. Um, explain to us or help us understand why prayer and fasting is such an integral part of what, uh, integral part of disciple making movements in what we do. Uh, any true movement, and this would be true in the history of of the church, uh, any true movement is a work of the Holy Spirit. I don't think anyone would deny that. Uh, basically, John 6, where it says, no man comes to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draw him. Uh, interestingly, the next verse says uh, that the prophets said they all will be taught by God. I think that's the concept of discovery is written right there. Now, I will tell you, evangelism has always been very important to me. It's always been some. I mean, I've, I've done it. Back when we did street evangelism, door-to-door evangelism, I've done it all. I've, I have been on a, a, everything, a, apologetics. I, I have overestimated people's interest in biblical archaeology. I promise you I have. Uh, I, I've been in their home. I have, I've been talking with them. They've got all these objections. I viewed, honestly, this was my view. I viewed that it was my role to get the gospel to these people who didn't know. And whatever objections they had, it was my responsibility. And I was in a man's house one evening for three hours answering every potential objection that he had. Knowing what I know now, he was not a person of peace. He was not open. He was not receptive. He did not want me to be there. Now the truth is, he eventually did pray. I think what he was doing was saying, What do I have to do for you to lead? You know, I'm going to have to pray. Okay, tell me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. Please get out of here. You know, so the truth is, the reason we pray, the reason we fast, the reason is because this is the Holy Spirit's work, not ours. If it's going to be a movement, it is not going to be in my strength. It's not going to be because I was... 
incredibly trained. It's not going to be because I knew the best method. It's going to be because the Holy Spirit of God was working somewhere before I ever got there and I was able through the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit to connect with that person He was working with before I got there. So why is prayer and fasting important? It is the foundation. The truth is if you will pray fast and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, then really the method is somewhat irrelevant. And whether you do DMM or not, pray fast. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit where He's leading, and there will create a movement. Uh, It it absolutely is foundational. And by the way, I learned more about that in my time with our African brothers. Those of us in the West, we desperately need to hear from our African brothers, our Asian brothers, on prayer and fasting and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. If I can recommend one thing, please connect with movements that are happening in Africa and Asia on that issue. Prayer, fasting, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Anything else we do is really vain if that's not happening. A little follow-up real quick. Um, Explain when we... One of the things that I learned when I went to Sierra Leone to see the disciple-making movement there with Pastor Shadaki Johnson, um, explain, share with us the prayer house and um, what all that means for uh, New Harvest Ministries and the disciple-making movements that are happening there. We all have heard of, you know, in the history in the past about, um, you know, the Bohemian, I mean, the uh, Moravian, the Moravian prayer movement, those things are happening today. They're happening today. I don't see them happening as much in the U.S. in our culture. I don't. We have strategized beyond the Holy Spirit at times. We have. Um, But I do see it in Africa, and I see it a lot of places. I have been many places where there's a 24-hour prayer meeting going on and has been for years what you're talking about in Sierra Leone with New Harvest Ministries and Shadake Johnson is a prayer house. There are people who live there, including Shadake's mother. And basically they've given themselves to pray. And uh, that is what they do. Every morning people come in. It is a prayer house. That is the only thing that that house is for. We are too busy for that. We've got our plans, we've got our strategies, we've got our goals, we've got our uh, spreadsheets that we have to deal with. They're praying, they're fasting, they're asking God. They don't, they're not encumbered in many ways in the way that we are. If there's one thing that I would just echo, 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 somehow when there have been movements that have happened here in our own country, Go back and look at the Haystack prayer meeting. Go back and look in our own history. It's been ignited by a movement of prayer and fasting. And honestly, when when we do that, that's why when they go, I mean, we we do do a training in Senegal. There's this guy named Jeremy. I know this is getting to a person in peace, but let me get one, one story. Jeremy, you know, Praying, fasting, his movement. They say there's an island off the coast of Senegal, 100% Muslim. There's an island they feel called to go to, so they get in the boat and they're headed to the island. 
and a guy on the boat realizes these aren't locals. This is last year, maybe two years ago. Realizes they're not locals, and he says, you know, what's your business on the island? Jeremy, he's a Senegalese guy. That's not a good Senegalese name. There probably was a missionary somewhere by the name of Jeremy. But anyway, <laughs> um, so Jeremy, Jeremy goes, I am on a mission. So the guy says, what kind of mission? Now, this is going 100% Muslim island. We would not do this, but this is Jeremy. Jeremy goes, a mission for Jesus. So the guy goes, do you know about him? He goes, yeah, I know a pretty good bit about him. He said, we've been reading about him in the Quran. Could you come and tell us what you know about this Jesus, Isa? Jeremy goes, sure. So he goes and he starts a discovery Bible study. The Holy Spirit of God using the Word of God in this man's home with his friends and his family. It was the imam of the mosque. After doing this with his family, the imam says, there are other imams on the island. I think they would be interested in this. Would you be willing to do a study like this with all of us imams? Prayer, fasting, sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Go to the island. Listening. Persons of peace end up coming to you. And so the idea is they are discipling the imams to faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you doubt imams and sheikhs are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, I've got a picture to show you on my phone. Come to see me afterwards. Sorry. Uh, You did not ask that question. Well, it's on my phone as well as a reminder. That picture... It was the same one that that you have. It's a picture that it's actually a picture of a picture that was hanging in Claude King's office. Is this the same one? But it's a picture of seventy imams lining up for baptism. Now, now try to get your hands, arms around that. And would you rejoice in that? Amen. Is that the same picture? No. Yes. <laughs> okay, and it's just an incredible. Um, but I'm going to, I am going to transition because I want to cover a couple of other topics here um, before we go um, in just a few minutes. We don't have much time. But sometimes these villages, high rises in our own America, they're hard, they're hard to get into, right? They're just very – you could spend days and days and day, weeks trying to find ways to get inside these buildings or closed communities, whatever that might be look like. But I learned about access ministries or serving with purpose um, during the engage class that Terry was was facilitating. And uh, we had a guest lecturer, his name was John King, this gentleman right here. And he started talking about access ministries, which intrigued me because being a, a Baptist forever and never, you know, imprinted on my diaper. SBC, you know, we've been great about serving, really have, doing missions. Uh, But sometimes we don't share the gospel in our clothes distribution. We just pass out clothes. And so I I heard John speak very 
passionately about access ministry. So I want John, if you will, John, to explain about what access ministry is. And again, how does that fit into disciple-making movements? And be brief. The hard part. <laughs> In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, uh, you know, you're to be salt and light. You're, you're like, to be like a city on a hill. Uh, cannot be hidden. And in that context, what he's especially talking about is doing our good deeds before men so that they'll be seen. Now, this is in a bigger context where he's saying don't do things so you get praise of men. How do you demonstrate the gospel behaviorally? Uh, access ministries are places where we're doing what we're doing to be a blessing to people. And it's about meeting needs they recognize they're wanting met. Um, in a poor Hispanic community here in the U.S., I know a church that uh, they were willing to do after-school uh, tutoring of children as a way of helping, but they didn't have a reason to be in the neighborhoods. They were Anglos. The folks there didn't know whether or not they could trust them. And they, they did it, some exploration, and they found a uh, laundromat near the, the area where the, this large Hispanic Latino community was. And they developed a relationship with the owner of the laundromat, and they said, we would like to offer after-school tutoring if you would be okay with that happening at the laundromat. Because we've, we've noticed that a lot of the uh, Latino moms come here and they're bringing their kids with them. And the owner was excited about that. And so they, they offered this tutoring, but it was in a context where they were going to have the opportunity to also interact with the moms. A lot of what we do with kids ends up being so exclusively with the kids, we don't get an opportunity to connect with the parents and the way the gospel really needs to flow is through those adult relationships. So how do we do the good things we do in ways that connect us with the people who are going to be most influential in a family, in a friendship group? Uh, a, a, another lady was sharing with me as I was doing some training in this that you know, she said somewhat sheepishly, you know, our son is a really good soccer player and, and he's on a traveling soccer team and, and we have to be gone so much uh, during this stretch of traveling soccer that the, the, you know, our pastors begin to think we don't care about the church. He, he's unhappy with us. I said, well, you're with the same parents every weekend, right? He said, yeah, or she said, yeah. I said, what if you did a discovery study with the soccer moms, with the, with the soccer parents? Uh, what are we already doing that has the possibility of being the place where we, we either start a discovery group right there or we're having overt spiritual conversations with people in, in the hopes of finding a person of peace and then the discovery study going into their family space. So sometimes it creates the very opening, sometimes it creates the connection to the person to their place. The good things we're already doing in social justice, in 
benevolence and compassion ministries. How can we do those? And that's one of the areas that we, we try to coach and help people to think through what are you doing already and then how can we leverage it? Gary and I were recently with a church down in Fort Lauderdale and they've adopted this one square mile area of their city that is very unreached and it's a high population density. And so we spent some time driving through that area looking. There's a school there. They're already building relationships with the principal, the assistant principal. There are these high-rise apartments. And we spent some time praying for access to one of those. I mean, they've got the, the key cards, the locked doors. They've got the signs. You don't go in there and start knocking doors and not get thrown out on your ear. And we spent some time praying that there are workers there. Well, the next day, this particular high-rise, the largest percentage of people who live there are Jewish people who've retired from New York down to that Fort Lauderdale area. And the next day, the very next day, we're in a room with just a few people who wanted to ask some questions about the training we had done. And this lady who wasn't in the training is there, and she shares her witness of coming to faith in Jesus, and guess what? She's Jewish. She lives in one of those high-rise buildings. She has the key card. She lives there. We start telling these other two ladies, you need to involve her in a discovery experience because that's the way she's going to be more likely to reach her neighborhood, her high-rise. How do we... Do what we're already doing, leverage for kingdom advance. Thanks, John. Got pumped up once again. Appreciate that. I'm going to give Gordon and, and, and Terry just, if you will, each one of you take two minutes and just say a final word because we're, we're, we're at our time. Uh, and uh, Gordon, you go first because you've got a VBS that you're going to do here in just a few minutes. So just take a minute and a half, two minutes, and just, just say a final word, and then Terry, if you would follow him. Okay. Um, my final word is come and do a DVS with us. Um, taste and see. Uh, the next step is actually do one yourself. Um, uh, it's nine steps, 17 words, easily done. Go and do it. Um, there's a follow-up with us that you can do. We, we try to, we try to, we've tried to become an organization that says we will come to you because we want what what we know we want to give away and we want to give away and and that's truly what we what we do it is um, th- this whole process is truly about trusting and following God God where are you at work already and when we see him at work stop your plan and join him and um, and then hang on. Uh, I would say this about the discovery process. It is This has nothing to do with us. Uh, we are just chasing after what God is doing, and he is making a way in Europe, in Africa, in China, in India. And we hope and pray that he would be so gracious as to take some stiff-necked Americans and Western church folks and say, you need to follow what I'm doing here because it is new. And uh, I have all the fears that we're feeling from the outside, politics, the climate of America, the future of America and all this or wherever it is in the world. God is saying, I 
have got this. Come, follow me. And that's my word. Thanks, Gordon. Terry? I think what I would end up on is that, uh, as mentioned earlier, my wife and I have really started the Engage course to train people. And at a certain point, we really needed to get the message down to eight words. And those eight words are, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And this is a truth that the church has discovered over the centuries. I had someone in an earlier session talked about St. Benedict used it. St. Patrick used similar methods, ordinary people. But I want to tell one quick story here, and that has to do with what in the early 1800s was Western America, right where we're sitting, Kentucky and Tennessee. There was a real darkness here because the leading churches in the East, the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, and the Episcopalians insisted on highly trained clergy. And guess what? Highly trained clergy would not come West. And so there was no one out here until Francis Asbury, who was the leader of the Methodists in the U.S., sent out by John Wesley personally, came upon the idea of sending circuit riders out, ordinary people, to ride a circuit. There would be two circuit riders on a circuit about two weeks apart, and they were starting local discovery groups in the West. And one of the things they always did was, we're told, send out people two by two. Every circuit rider would choose a young man, usually between 16 and 18 years old, as an apprentice. And he would take with him. And after a while, this young man would become a circuit rider on his own, and he would take other people with him. He would have an apprentice. And by the time of the American Civil War, 80% of the people who were attending church in America were Methodist just because of this method of God using ordinary people. The sad thing is the Methodists started building seminaries and insisting on a highly trained clergy, and they weren't using the ordinary ignorant people anymore, and the movement kind of fell by the side. But the nice thing is there were still plenty of ignorant Baptists that kept it going for about another 20 years. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. By the way, I'm a Baptist. Yeah. Folks, that's it. I think hopefully you have a, an opportunity and understanding. Um, before you go, just to let you know, we, we have a follow-up forum that we're going to do a, a teleconference on October 17th at 2.30 uh, p.m. Central Time. If, you want, if you're interested in joining us in this, uh, this time, then go to our exhibit area and you can sign up and uh, we'll invite you and get you information. Thanks for being here. God bless you. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. This audio was adapted from the original presentation. Not all live interactions are included. Learn how you can grow as a disciple maker by visiting discipleship.org, where you can also register for the next National Disciple Making Forum.